Uh, Please join me in our scripture reading uh, for this morning. It is found in the book of Romans, chapter chapter 7, verses 4 to 25. It is also found uh, on pages 13 and 14 of your worship guide. Uh, If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And as you do so, remember that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our Lord is living and active and abides forever. Romans chapter 7, verse 4 to 25. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when it comes, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dan. We continue our study through the book of Romans. I want to uh, review our, our very simple outline of the book. Those three words, guilt, grace, and gratitude. So we started the book with guilt, the first two and a half chapters or so. And that was a, a hard section to be in for several weeks. Because each week we were confronted with our guilt before a holy God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it was good and necessary to see that so then we can understand and have a greater appreciation for the grace of God. The best news that you have ever heard. The best news the world has ever heard. That God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for guilty sinners. And we're in the midst of this section on grace in our study through the book of Romans. Paul has been proclaiming all this good news about our new life in Christ. And he has just explained in the beginning of chapter 7 how those in Christ have died to the law. We looked at this last week. We, see, we saw that we have died to the law as a means of salvation. So we don't obey God's law in order to earn his favor or earn his love. We also have died to the law as a means of punishment. We now do not obey to avoid God's punishment. Why? Because Jesus has taken care of both of those for us. We've died to the law so that we can now belong to Jesus. And we belong to Jesus so that we can now bear fruit for God. We can live a new life. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. Now then, as, as Paul is writing this great news, once again, he anticipates an objection that his readers will have, and perhaps he also thinks about the struggle going on in his own life. Wait a minute. If I am united to Christ, if Christ is in me, why do I still sin so much? Or perhaps a related question we might ask as we're wrestling with these truths and rejoicing in these truths. Are you a saint or a sinner? Are you a saint or a sinner? If you remember back to chapter 1, Paul told us that he is writing to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And this is how Paul often addresses the people that he's writing to, God's people, saints, holy ones, or those who have been set apart for God. Now we're in the middle of this section on grace, and we saw Romans chapter 5, chapter 6. It's talking all about our union with Christ. For those who acknowledge their guilt, they repent of their sin, they trust in Jesus, you indeed are in Christ, and Christ is in you. So God has made you righteous and holy in his sight. He indeed has made you a saint. So if you're in Christ, it is right and it is good for you to know that, to believe that, to remember that. It's also good for you to know that if you are a saint, if you're in Christ, 
It's not because of what you do. It's not because you obey and don't sin. But it's because Jesus obeyed and died for your sin. Because he has made you his own. But it's also good to know that if you are a saint, you are a saint who sins. You're a saint who sins. And if you're a saint, not only are you a saint who sins, but you're a saint who sins more than you want to. Not only more than you want to, but you actually often do the very thing you hate. That's what we see in Paul's life. Now remember, those who are in Christ, the saints in Christ Jesus, in the eyes of God, and you're standing before God as your holy judge, there is no sin in your account. It's gone forever. On the other hand, there is perfect, complete, overflowing, abounding righteousness in your account, for it's not your own, it's the righteousness of Christ. That is true always and will never change. Amen? And it is also true that this standing before God does not yet perfectly correlate to how you live, to your actual practice in life. And so you are at the same time both a saint and a sinner. Luther made that phrase famous during the Reformation. You are at the same time a saint and a sinner. In yourself, in ourselves, in myself, we are, I am, the chief of sinners. But in Christ, we are, you are, I am, the righteousness of God. Paul himself, who wrote this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would say of himself in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was the least of the apostles, that he was unworthy to be called an apostle. In Ephesians chapter 3, he would call himself the least of all the saints. And then in 1 Timothy 1, he would say that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, hallelujah, of whom I am the foremost or the worst or the chief. So here in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul laments the fact. This is a lament from his life. He laments the fact that though he is united to Christ, he's no longer in Adam. Christ has come and taken him out of Adam and united him to himself. And that is forever true of Paul. But he's lamenting the fact that though that is true, he is dead to sin and he's alive to God. Sin no longer has dominion over his life. Grace reigns in his life. He's died to law. He is under grace. He is a saint. Though all that is indeed true in his life, he laments the fact that there is still so much sin in his life. And here's what we can learn from his lament. For those of us today, those of us who are in Christ, who are indeed saints, you have entered into a lifelong battle a fight, a war with sin. And in this war, the law is your friend. Sin is your enemy. And Jesus is your deliverer. This is Paul's personal testimony. You probably weren't counting, but if you did, from verse 7 through 25, 
Paul uses that personal pronoun I 30 times. Now we read this passage at men's prayer this Friday, and Dave Swanson said if his English teacher was there, uh, the teacher would say, you shouldn't use so many I's. Well, Paul's telling us about his experience. In verses 7 through 13, this section, Paul describes his life in Adam before his conversion, before he became a Christian. Perhaps he was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit during this time. But then in the end of this chapter, verses 14 through 25, Paul's continuing his personal testimony, but now he's describing his life as a believer. Now, there is some debate about that more recently in the history of the church because it's understandable. It's a hard passage to understand because he says some things that don't seem to line up with what he's already said in Romans, right? Verse 14, he says, I'm of the flesh sold under sin. Or verse 18, he says, nothing good dwells in me. Or verse 23, he says, I'm captive to the law of sin. So those kinds of things don't seem to quite line up with what he's been saying about our union with Christ. But then he also says things that seem to be clear descriptions of a new life in Christ. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what is good, what is right. I do not want to do evil. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Beloved, that delight can only come from God himself. Or verse 25, I serve the law of God with my mind. And also, so not only is he saying these things that can only be true of believers, but he's also using present tense verbs. He's describing his life now as it is. So what Paul's doing is he's describing his own experience, from his own experience, what it's like. What it's like to live as a believer, as a saint, as one who's united to Christ, engaged in this battle with indwelling sin. He has died to sin, but sin has not died to him. Sin has not given up the fight. And so, beloved, for those who are in Christ, those who are saints, you must know that right now, you are in a lifelong battle, a fight, a war with sin. And in that war... The law is your friend. Sin is your enemy. And Jesus is your deliverer. Now let's consider those three things. The law is your friend. The law is your friend if you understand its purpose. If you understand its purpose and use it rightly. So this will help me, might not help you. But the law is your friend like a chainsaw can be your friend. Right? So yesterday, the chainsaw was my friend. I used it to cut up these big pieces of wood into smaller lengths that I can then chop up into firewood. And the chainsaw was a huge help to me. It enabled me to do things I could not do on my own. It was my friend. But it would not have been my friend if I had then later used it to clip my fingernails or to trim my beard or to cut my hair. If I had used it in that way yesterday, I would not be here today. Beloved, the law is your friend if you understand its purpose, if you use it rightly. And Paul helps us understand in verse 7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. The law is not sin. It does not make you sin. What does it do? So there are three reasons why the law is your friend. At least three. Three here. It shows you your sin, your guilt before a holy God. It shows you your need for a savior. 
and then it drives you to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only Savior. This is how the law is your friend. So first, it shows you your sin, your guilt before a holy God. Verse 7, Paul says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, Paul is not saying that apart from the law, I'm not a sinner. He's saying, apart from the law, I don't know that I'm a sinner. Apart from the law, we don't know that the things that we think and say and do are wrong until God's law reveals that to us. This is why Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet until, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So it's not that Paul had not coveted before then. He had. He just didn't know that it was wrong until he was confronted with the holy law of God. And here's here's what sin does in our lives. It takes God's good gift of the law to magnify what's already wrong in our hearts. So in verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. And he's talking about his self-perception before he became a believer. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is, is looking back to uh, how he could have viewed himself. Everybody's boasting about their own righteousness. And Paul says, yeah, you know what? You could do that. I could do that apart from Christ too. And so he says, as in regards to righteousness in the law, I was faultless. I was blameless. At that time, Paul didn't understand what the law required. Not only did it require perfect obedience in every way, but perfect motives. Remember, why we do what we do is just as important as what we do. And so in that part of his life, Paul saw the law as this behavioral code that he could externally keep, like the rich young ruler. Remember, this young man comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the commandments. And the rich young ruler is like, great, I've done all those things. I'm good. And Jesus is not so impressed, is he? He says, really? Okay, one thing you lack. Go, sell all you possess, give to the poor, and come follow me. And what is Jesus doing in that answer? He's using the law to convict. It's really a test of the very first commandment. The young man says, I've kept all the commandments. Oh yeah? What about the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. In reality, you love your possessions. You love money more than God. So the rich young ruler, he thought, he felt like he was spiritually alive, acceptable to God, but he went away sad once he understood he wasn't. That he loved his possessions more than God. Now I don't know, we're not told if that conviction led to salvation for the rich young ruler, but for Paul it did. His self-perception was corrected He was dead, a moral failure. He was unable to save himself. And what changed his mind? What, in a sense, killed him? It was the command. You shall not covet. So what happened in his life? What happened in his heart? He reflected on the command. And as he did so, his sin prompted him to covet. So now he knew, I'm not a law keeper. I'm a law breaker. I'm a sinner. It's not the law that is sinful, it's me. The law exposed his heart for what it really was. Beloved, we are born in Adam. 
Every one of us. Under the condemnation, under the guilt of sin. So when the law says, don't do something, our sinful self in Adam responds, now I really want to do that. Right? You probably have all experienced this. You've seen some kind of sign before. Don't touch or don't cross the line. Or maybe parents, you've had this experience with your young children. Maybe you tell them not to open something or don't go in that room. And all of a sudden, we never wanted to do something so bad in our lives. Some of you are, are familiar with James Boyce. He has a great story, a personal illustration about this. So James Boyce is now with Jesus But he was once the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, a beloved pastor in our denomination. And he says that when he he was in 6th grade, he can remember, so what, he's like 11, 12 years old. He can remember the principal coming to his classroom. And just before they sent them home for lunch, I guess in those days they would go home for lunch and then come back for the second part of the day at school. So just before that, the principal comes in and he says, listen kids, you cannot bring fireworks to school. If you bring fireworks to school, you will be expelled, even if you don't set them off. So don't even bring them to school. And he's thinking, I don't have any fireworks. And up till now, I wasn't even thinking about fireworks. But he was now. And so on the way home, he's thinking about them, and he remembers, oh yeah, I have a friend who has some. And I'm going to take a little detour on my way back to school. He goes to his friend's house, and he gets these fireworks, and he brings them back to school. This is James Boyce, sixth grade James Boyce. He brings him back to school. He gets his friends. He takes them into a closet, and he tells his friend, listen, we're going to light this firecracker. You just hold it by the fuse there because it's just going to be a trick. As it starts to burn, when it reaches your fingers, it'll go out. It's just a trick, no harm, no foul. Nobody knows. Well, what he didn't realize is that fire starts to hurt your fingers when it gets hot. And so when it got to his friend's fingers, he drops it, and it explodes in the closet. He never knew it would be so loud. Bits of paper flying everywhere. And so they stumble out of the closet. What he also didn't know was how fast that principal could get from his office down to outside that closet door. And he was stunned as the boys were, but in a different way. And so James Boyce is sent home, comes back later with his parents, and he remembered the principal saying over and over again, I had just made the announcement. I had just told them not to bring any firecrackers to school. I just can't. Believe it. Principal must have never read Romans 7. He must not have understood the human heart. Actually, Boyce writes this. He couldn't believe it then. But I'm sure that our rebellion, as well as the rebellion of many other children throughout the years, turned that principal into a staunch believing Calvinist. At least as far as the doctrine of the total depravity of children is concerned. Well, that's what the law does. It reveals our natural wickedness. It brings our rebellion to light. It shows us not only that we violate God's law, but that we want to. That we sin. We are sinners. We are guilty. And in that way, the law is our friend. It helps us realize our guilt before a a holy God. The law is also our friend because it shows us our need for a savior. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now the commandments, the law of God proved to be death to Paul. Why? Because he couldn't keep them. And beloved, neither can you. You cannot obey the law in a way that will earn you life. Romans has told us clearly, you disobey. 
you fall short of the glory of God. You do not always obey from the heart, and you do often break God's commands. You disobey and you earn death. The wages of sin is death. What does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. And the law is powerless to free you from this curse. Only Jesus can. So in that way, the law drives you to Jesus, the Son of God, the only Savior. The Puritans used to say, we need to slay men by the law so then we can raise them back up with the gospel. Put them to te- use, the, use the law to kill them and then bring them back with the gospel. That, that word slay means to kill or to destroy. And what's their aim in saying that? It's, it's to kill self-righteousness. Any kind of reliance on the self for salvation. So the law says you shall not covet. Every one of you is guilty of coveting. Every one of you. Coveting is to be discontent with what God has given you or to be bitter about what he has given others. So have you ever wanted what someone else has? Maybe as a child it's some toy that a friend has. A favorite book. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a talent. Maybe it's money or friends or family. You ever wanted what someone else has? Or have you ever resented someone for what they have? You look with envy upon someone for the good health that they have. Or maybe in your eyes, it's the perfect life they seem to have, the vacations they get to take, all that their children have accomplished. You ever make comparisons? Friends, we do this every day. We are guilty. The law says you shall have no other gods before me. Well, it's everything, everything that you ever think or say or do, is it always done from a heart of love for God to please him? Not even close. Every one of us is guilty. John Gershner was preaching on this and a woman came up to him afterwards and she said, you make me feel this big. And he said, that's too big. That's much too big. Don't you know that that much self-righteousness will take you to hell? You have to be brought low to the absolute end of yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. And we need that purpose of the law to work in our hearts. Listen, my goal here is not to send you home feeling bad about yourself. And that wasn't Gerstner's goal either. The goal is to send you home realizing there's no salvation in yourself. You cannot save yourself. And then we point you to Jesus who alone can save. And there's no one he cannot save. There's no sin he cannot forgive. There's no wound he cannot heal. So we slay with the law and then we raise you up with the gospel. We point you to Christ. So, beloved, the law is your friend in this war against sin. It's not your friend if you strive to obey it in order to earn your own righteousness, to make yourself acceptable to God. If that's how you view it, if that's how you relate to it, it will kill you. But the law is your friend in this war against sin when you recognize its purpose, when you use it as God designed, because the law will tell you the truth. It will tell you the truth about your guilt. 
It will tell you the truth about your need for a savior and it will drive you to Jesus for rescue. You know, but before we can say, thanks be to God, we have to admit our guilt. We admit our need. We confess our sin. And God's law helps us do this. Beloved, the law is your friend in this war, but sin is your enemy. Sin is your enemy. Verse 11, we're told that sin deceives and it kills. Now, as a believer, as a saint, sin has no power in your life to kill your relationship with God. You have new life. You have eternal life in Christ. And no sin has the power to destroy that life. But sin does still deceive. Sin never tells the truth. It always lies. There are many ways that sin deceives in our lives. It can deceive us by despair. Maybe there is some besetting sin in your life that you have struggled with over and over and over again. And sin will lie to you. It will say you're hopeless. You cannot overcome that. You've already sinned in that way. It doesn't matter if you do it again. Those are the kinds of thoughts that sin will put in your mind. It will deceive you. Or it may, it may deceive you with denial. What you're doing is not sin. Everybody is doing it. There won't be any consequences. It won't hurt you. It won't hurt others. But the truth about sin is that it takes you farther than you wanted to go. You stay longer than you wanted to stay. You pay more than you wanted to pay. But sin will not come to you with that truth. It will deceive you. It may deceive you with deflection. Put the blame on someone else. The reason you are doing this is because you were sinned against. The reason you are doing this is because this is the way you were made. This is, this is the desire you've had from birth. Those things can be true, but it doesn't excuse your responsibility for sin. It will deceive you with desire, right? Like bait on a hook. All the fishermen out there know there are different ways that you can catch different fish. You, you try to bait them with something that looks desirable to them, something that they want, And sin will do this. It will hold up the desire, the appeal. But whatever it is that appeals to you, you must know that hidden underneath is a hook that will kill you. Sin is not your friend. It is your enemy. It deceives you. It wants to kill you. Sin has never been your friend. It does not care for you at all. It's out to kill you. It's out to destroy you. Again, Friday morning after we read this passage at men's prayer, Bob Stauffer said, it really makes you hate sin, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes, amen. Sin is your enemy, beloved. Hate it. Do not be deceived by it. But sin is also your enemy because as a new creation in Christ, you now have a growing desire within you to do what is right. You want to honor and please the Lord. And sin works against that desire. It tries to get you to do what you hate, what you don't want to do. So you have this battle going on within you. This is what Paul has been describing here. And Paul has been a follower of Jesus for around 20 years when he writes this letter. He's gone on his missionary journeys. He has planted churches. He has raised up elders. He has said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But now he writes, verse 14, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. This is not a new believer. 
He's been walking with Christ for 20 years. He's been inspired by the Spirit to write part of the Word of God. And here he says, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Verse 17, he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul is saying, even for the growing, maturing believer, sin dwells in me and leads me to do evil, to do the very thing that I hate. So he asks, we might ask, why do I sin so much? And I think the answer, at least to a certain extent, is frustrating for the believer. It's frustrating, it's it's discouraging, but it's meant to drive us to Jesus in complete dependence upon him. To see that the answer is not in ourselves, my own strength, my own desires. Why do you sin so much? Because you still live in the flesh, in a physical body, in a fallen world. You don't yet have your resurrected body. So sin also dwells in you. Yes, Christ is in you. Praise be to God. But sin also dwells in you. And so you will fight against sin until Jesus calls you home. Beloved, this war that you're in with sin, it will not end until you die or until Jesus returns. That's the hard news. That can be discouraging for us. We just, we want the war and our lives with sin to be over. Because why? Because we hate sin. And now we love Jesus. And we want to please him. But it's so hard sometimes. This is the hard news. But there's good news. There is reason for hope. Christ indeed is in you. And he has paid for every failing. He has paid for your every sin. He's not only the author of your faith. He's the perfecter of your faith. His grace is made perfect in your weakness. And he has begun a good work in you and he will complete it. This is the good news, beloved. You win. You win. Jesus has already called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So now you do know the truth about your guilt, the truth about your need, and the truth about your Savior. He's already called you out of death into life. So now you are dead to sin and alive to God. But he has not yet called you into his eternal kingdom. And so you struggle with sin because you've not yet seen Jesus as he is. You've seen a glimpse, but you see dimly. Yes, your eyes have been opened, but you haven't yet seen Jesus as he is with your own eyes in all his glory. But that full sight is coming. And once you see him fully as he is, the struggle will be over forever. But until then, the struggle will be ongoing. But beloved, you have what you need to be victorious in the fight. You are at the same time righteous and a sinner. You still sin, you still need the Savior every day, and you do hunger and thirst for righteousness. So remember, in your relationship with God, before the judgment of God, all your sin has been paid for. Perfect righteousness of Christ has been credited to you. You are righteous. You are justified. You are a saint. In practice, in your daily living, you still sin. 
but you are becoming in practice what you are in position. God has begun that good work in you and he will bring it to completion. So yes, beloved, fight against sin with every fiber of your being. Make every effort. But in making every effort, know this, those efforts, every one of them, doomed to failure, if that's what you're relying on. If you're relying on yourself, trying to beat sin in your own way, apart from the truth of God's word, apart from being made alive in Christ, apart from abiding in Christ, you will fail. We're in this war with sin until Jesus calls us home. And while sin is our great enemy, we can indeed win the battles in this war through Jesus, who is our great deliverer. Do you want to sin less and obey more? Every saint wants that. Of course we want to sin less and obey more. Well, that comes from knowing that we are loved by God. It comes from knowing the love of God in Christ. It comes from beholding the glory of Christ. You want to sin less and obey more? 